seated. Well, good morning. Open with me once again. You're inspired and you're inerrant. You're infallible and you're all sufficient Bibles with me to the magnificent and the captivating gospel of Mark that has been breathed out by God that is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for correction, for training us in righteousness. Such a blessing it is to have Brady back with us again with Nicole, as, just as we would miss a, a finger or a toe or an arm or a leg if they were gone, so we miss our brothers and sisters. An exciting Sunday as well today, we gather afterwards for our fall festival, celebrating the Reformation, October 31st, the day Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, famously took his grievances against the church in Rome, 95 of them and ceremoniously nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg, sparking, of course, in part, the Protestant Reformation. And we are here today as Protestant offspring of that Reformation. Protestant being where we get the word protester from. We protested the actions of the Catholic Church. Well, not much has changed. We protest it still. Yet it seems that the spirit of protest has been a defining hallmark of our day, a spirit of our time. 2020 and 2021 have been consumed with protests on all sides. Now, as Christians, we are called to live at peace with all men to the extent that we are able. We desire to live peaceable, quiet lives, working with our hands, as Paul says. We desire peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're not rebels. We seek to honor the king and obey the government to the extent that we are able but while we do not seek to be disobedient, just like a faithful officer of the law, we will only obey a lawful order from a lawful source. It's important for us to know in these changing times that God has instituted spheres of authority in Scripture, from the government and the civil realm to family and finally the church. And God not only ordains leaders and officials in these spheres, but we also know that when anybody whether it be a husband in the family sphere, a pastor in the church sphere, or a government official in their sphere, oversteps their bounds of their God-given authority that those under them are not bound by Scripture to obey that authority. Just as Scripture does not require a godly wife to stay and submit in the home to an abusive husband, nor does Scripture require a godly citizen to submit to an abusive government in areas that they overstep their bounds. It's often interesting that some who are quick to list a hundred exceptions and clauses to a wife submitting to her husband in Ephesians 5 are often the first to pledge nearly unlimited obedience to government. You may often hear that unless the government tells me to deny God or not to preach, I must obey everything I'm told. That's akin to the abused woman saying, well, he didn't actually kill me, so it's all good, I'll submit. That's not the standard, though that's what we're often told. The authority that God has given to government and Scripture applies when they are functioning as God says they are to function. Romans 13 is often the most quoted section of Scripture when speaking about a Christian's duty to obey the government, and indeed it is. But what is often overlooked by some is the kind of government that Paul is talking about. How does Paul describe the government that God has ordained that we are to be obedient to? Looking at Romans 13, I would recommend reading all verses 1 through 7, but taking just verses 3 through 5 for us this morning. 
Romans 13, 3 through 5. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So what do we notice here? Is Paul talking about a government that is a terror to those who do good and a protector to those who do bad? No. He is talking about a government that is a protector of those who do good and a terror to those who do bad and who brings wrath to the wrongdoer. That's why we so love and support our men and women in law enforcement, as an example. Our police on the street. They are a cause for fear to those who would do wrong. Respect them. Honor them. Obey them. They are in the dead center of the sphere of government as God designed it. A government of God's design is one that causes the wicked to fear. They are punishers of evil, not of good. If the government is persecuting the righteous, if they cause the good to fear, if they legislate immorality calling good evil and evil good, as in Romans 1, is that the government Paul describes that we should be in obedience to? Not at all. Now, does that mean we cast off restraint? Hey, parts of our government are evil and corrupt, so we don't need to listen? Not at all. Not at all. The elements and dictates that do fall into a godly sphere of government, we must obey. And vast swaths of rules and laws do indeed fall under that good umbrella. We are a law-abiding people. If the dictate and the law given falls in the sphere of Romans 13, as Christians, we are to be the very first to obey. We are to lead the charge in honoring authority. Pay your taxes. Amen and amen. Well, the great writer and Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer, many of you know, wrote about this truth extensively. And he writes, quote, The civil government, as all of life, stands under the law of God. But when any office commands that which is contrary to the word of God, those who hold that office abrogate their authority and they are not to be obeyed. And that includes the state. The state is to be an agent of justice, to restrain evil by punishing wrongdoers and to protect the good in society. When the state does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then an usurped authority, and as such, it becomes lawless and is tyranny, close quote. Meaning, your authority, you hold your authority when you exercise it from the circle that God gave you. Can your pastor fire you from your job? No. But could your body of elders exercise church discipline against someone? Yes. Can the government tell a church how and where to meet, or how and when it may conduct its worship? No. Jesus Christ is head of the church, not Caesar. We all innately understand these truths, but in a very sneaky way, the sphere of government has slowly crept out of its bounds and is bleeding into family and church. And many of us just accept this as the way, it, the way that it is. Yes, we are law-abiding citizens. Christians should be the most diligent, faithful citizens out there to a government that is in its God-ordained sphere. These truths are necessary for us to understand. 
If we are to be discerning Christians in these days, know your church is not becoming more political here, but your government is becoming far more religious. Meaning they're outside of their spheres in many ways when the righteous now fear their government. And we must know how to answer these abuses. What is our responsibility as Christians? Well, one pressing example as a a pastor, I do not go a day without being approached questioned or confronted even as early as this morning with the issue of vaccine mandates it's a hot topic i'm asked about it constantly as it carries with it some direct theological and christian implications again your pulpit is not becoming more political but our government is becoming far more religious and if they're going to walk into our wheelhouse we must speak to them Thus, we must speak on these things. How ought we to think about these issues based on Scripture? And what is the position of your church leadership on such an important topic? We seek to be faithful. Yes, submissive to godly government, even when our opinions may not agree with them. However, that order must be lawful, given by a lawful entity, spoken from their God-given sphere of authority. Government's authority comes from God. Full stop. Our own Constitution affirms this very truth. A God-ordained government only possesses the authority to protect the rights of her citizenry and to make laws that either incentivize obedience to God's law or to criminalize disobedience to God's law within a society. That is the realm of government. And many would be shocked to know that it's not even the government's job to prevent illness. Government's job is not to make sure that you live as long as possible. We live wisely. Caring for our bodies as Scripture demands, knowing that God has affixed a time for our death. We avail ourselves of the common grace of medicine. All of these things we do. Yet we do not put any created entity on God's throne. And no entity loves to occupy that throne more than the state. Begging the question, who exactly is our provider and our protector? You'll notice that the more secularized a society becomes, as Christianity shrinks in a given society, what grows at exactly the same pace? The state. Ultimately, this is why as Christians we are opposed to big government. A state that exceeds the boundaries set forth by God will eventually desire to be God to her citizenry. A government that has grown outside of her sphere is going to compete for the love and the loyalty and the position that belongs to God alone. Thus, God gives strict boundaries. They are divine boundaries. And within those boundaries, you will find our joyful obedience to the God-ordained institution of government. Now, sadly, we have members even here at Harrison Hills that are facing the very real prospect of losing their employment due to these, as of now, unwritten governmental medical mandates. Some, sadly, already have. I'm being asked often as well about religious exemptions as well, and will Harrison Hills help in that pursuit? And what does that look like? Sadly, we're hearing from congregants around the country. I do daily, almost hourly, That many churches, many pastors are not only not helping their congregants in these situations, but in fact are rebuking them for even seeking this help. We are seeing a trend of churches around the country who are refusing church entry to those who are not vaccinated or they are segregating their congregations. You must know that that will never happen at HHBC while our leadership has breath. 
As a leadership body, we have adopted a position statement for the HHBC family that is being circulated amongst like-minded congregations. And you'll find that inserted in your bulletin this morning. Concerning the issues of medical mandates as it continues to impact so many facets of our members' lives. Now, if you're retired, this may not be something you're contending with. But know that your brothers and sisters out in the workforce are in a hurricane right now to varying degrees. Now, a few brief things to say about this statement. One, this is not a position on the vaccine itself. Whether or not someone vaccinates is a matter of personal liberty for the Christian. Based on your own research, your own personal health, your age, your own informed conscience, a Christian needs to make that determination on their own. Which leads to a second vital point. Just as the vaccine is a personal decision, we do not bind our conscience to another's. Meaning we do not impose our conscience on another. We do not call sin what the Bible does not call sin. The same applies for this position statement concerning these mandates. Our intent is not to bind your conscience. Members need not even agree with it. That's perfectly fine. But we do owe it to our church family to give clear leadership on this important issue and let you know what you can expect from your elders should you need any help or any counsel on this issue. It may also help you to begin thinking critically about these issues as well. As I mentioned in your bulletins this morning, we've included a copy of the HHBC statement. You'll be able to take it home and chew on it. There's a lot there. If you need help soon in obtaining a religious exemption, assuming you affirm it, this will be the essence of the document you will receive from us. Now, I won't read the whole statement, but encourage you to do so at your leisure. I will, however, read the last paragraph as a synopsis. Therefore, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we uphold the rights and responsibilities of the members of Harrison Hills Baptist Church to make responsible medical decisions for themselves and their families, including their right to refuse vaccinations or gene therapies on religious grounds. And we hereby call upon all authorities, political, governmental, organizational, or otherwise, to respect these deeply held religious convictions by upholding this religious liberty of conscience and to resist all efforts of mandatory vaccinations. Now there's much, more, much, much more that we can say on these topics, especially as it relates to the Christian response to government overreach what our biblical responsibilities are. What does it mean that God has sovereignly dictated spheres of authority? What does that mean for Lanesville 2021? Well, much, much more will be taught on these topics in the coming months as they become more pressing to us. Amen? Well, last week we met one of the most amazing women in Scripture, the Syrophoenician woman. If you happen to have missed last Sunday, I would heartily encourage you to throw those things on the earbuds and go out for a jog. You will be blessed by it. A most unlikely faith found in the most unlikely of places. And we saw the opening salvo of Jesus being among the Gentiles here in his final year of ministry. Not just among the Gentiles, but in the belly of the beast. Entire last week of all places. A history with a storied past. This was the birthplace of Baal worship. Jezebel herself was princess here of Tyre. And yet scripture says that the light is going to shine there. Salvation is going to come to Tyre. And in fact, their hearts there are softer than the Jews that Jesus was leaving behind. And that's always been the pattern of Jesus' ministry, hasn't it been? The greater the resistance from the Jews, the more Jesus goes to the Gentiles. 
And Jesus is now deep into what the Jews would consider enemy territory, defiled territory, heathen, pagan, idol-worshiping territory, Tyre, Sidon, and Decapolis. Yet even now the disciples were able to witness such amazing faith in the Syrophoenician woman. And how important a lesson for them. You are going to find the most amazing faith in the most unlikely places. Yes, salvation came first to the lost sheep of Israel, but it is coming to the Gentiles as well. And many of the disciples would be sent to the Gentiles, wouldn't they? They would preach and they would die to bring, to the, go- to bring the gospel to just these kinds of people. So if I were them, I would be remembering the Syrophoenician woman in a very special way. Well, today our journey even deeper into Gentile territory continues And we're going to encounter a man who is not only deaf, but essentially mute as well. It's a story that's brimming with truths that are going to make us love our Savior more. So with that, let's have a look at our text. Mark 7, 31 through 37. And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven with a sigh, he said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he was ordering them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us along on your journey through Gentile nations. Lord, as Gentiles ourselves, this speaks to our heart in a special way. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine this text for us. We ask that the arrow would find its mark this morning as you attend to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, during our scripture reading as part of worship this morning, we read from the prophet Isaiah. And while it's a magnificent passage, it carries far more significance to our passage today than we may realize on the surface. There are two very unique things about our text today that we need to see first before we proceed. Now first, this is one of only three events that are only recorded in Mark. There are only three events unique to Mark, and this is one of them. Now what does this tell us? This was very important to Mark for a reason. He wanted this relayed to his primary audience, which, of course, we know is what? A Gentile audience. No one else writes about this, but Mark does. So that's our first guiding principle here. And secondly, if we look at verse 32, we see a very unique word here in the Greek, mogalalos, for the word spoke. Spoke. What's unique about this is that prior to Mark using this word, it had only been used one other time in Scripture. Where? Guess where? The prophet Isaiah, chapter 35, that we read this morning. 
So when you have a single use of a word in Scripture and a later author uses that rare and unique word, you can guarantee that the author wants you to connect the two. He wants you to connect the two, and so we must. Isaiah 35 is connected to our text in Mark 7, and it is magnificent if we look at the context of Isaiah 35. In the preceding chapters, Isaiah 34 and behind, Isaiah has pronounced severe judgment on Israel. The end of chapter 34 shows a land that is, is barren. It's been delivered over to the wild, to, to jackals and to snakes. It's abandoned in the worst way. This is basically the crescendo. It's the very peak of declared judgment against Israel from Isaiah. That's what makes chapter 35 so special. How gracious is our God when he declares judgment. Mercy is always following in its wake. Chapter 35 is the declaring of that mercy, of that undeserved favor. The presence of God returning to his people. The kingdom of God coming on the scene. And when would that happen? When does the kingdom of God come on the scene? Messiah. Messiah. And even though you are sitting in complete desolation, look at the coming light. Messiah is coming. And when he does, he will give sight to the blind and the deaf will hear and the tongues of the mute will be loosed. Which is exactly what we see in our text today. A fulfillment of Isaiah 35. A thread running straight through to Mark 7. Now how wonderful is it to see the continuity of the Bible? Do you know why the Bible has such continuity with 700 years between these two texts? Because it's the same author. It's the same author, amen? It's all breathed out by God. So with that, let's dive into our first verse. So amazing. Verse 31. And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Well, first item we need to see here is this enormous upside-down U-shape that Jesus is taking here for his route. So he's in Tyre, which is over on the coast. He walks north up the, up the Phoenician coast to Sidon, and he loops around the Sea of Galilee and comes back down the south to the southwestern side to Decapolis. Can you visualize that, that big upside-down loop that he made? Is this the most efficient route to get to Decapolis? Not at all. Would this be the normal route to walk? Not even close. Why does Lanesville 2021 care about that? Well, this unusual route tells us what Jesus is up to. He is making time and space to spend with his disciples here in the last year of his ministry. This is discipleship time. When you're out there walking, in this case, over 120 miles, there is nothing but the sound of your sandals hitting the dirt. Just you and the master pouring into you, building you up, encouraging you. No doubt telling them for the 100th time that I'm going to be handed over to wicked men and crucified, but three days later, I will rise again. So our lesson in Jesus' root here, discipleship matters. Discipleship matters. If you're not being actively discipled, find someone senior in the faith and get discipled. If you're a more senior saint, be teaching and instructing the young men and young women. Be discipling and be discipled. That's the pattern of Jesus' entire life and ministry was to pour into these men. So that's what we see here with his root. 
Now, as Jesus swings down the eastern side of the lake, he comes to the region of Decapolis. Now, this would essentially be an area of, of ten smaller, what we would know as, as city-states. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city, right? Ten cities. Jesus has been in this area before, back in Mark 5. But we'll hit on the significance of that at the end of our text. It's quite amazing. But suffice to say for now, these people knew who Jesus was. His name was spread with great fame. And while Mark doesn't show it, the other Gospels record Jesus as healing many on this Gentile mission. Many. Their hearts were soft. Their hearts were soft. The wine had been poured to overflowing for the Jews, and it's now spilling off the table to the Gentiles. Or as our Syrophoenician woman said last week, even the dogs are now getting the crumbs. Our story continues as we're introduced to the co-star of our text. Jesus is always the star, but who's the co-star of our text? Verse 32. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. Now as we visualize friends bringing another friend who is unable to Christ. I know many of our gazes are drawn to the paralytic earlier in Mark chapter 2 wasn't it? Such a beautiful demonstration, not only of Jesus' healing power, but of his authority to forgive sins. Now here we see friends bringing him to Jesus. Now why would that be necessary? He's not lame. He could walk. Why the friends? Well, he may be able to walk, but he cannot speak. There would be no one to speak for him. He was a cripple in a sense. Because of being deaf, his tongue was crippled. He would have never learned how to formulate words coherently. Now, whether this man was deaf from birth, we don't know. The guess is no, because it says that he spoke with difficulty, meaning likely he was able to develop something of his speech in his early years. This was likely a deafness that hit him somewhat later in his childhood. Now, the actual bringing of this man is given in the present tense. That tells us that this is an eyewitness account that we're reading here. Mark got this from Peter, and Peter's saying, I saw this with my own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. Yes, this man was deaf, but the deaf, Isaiah says, will hear when Messiah comes on the scene. Yes, he will mute. He will heal the mute, Mogilalos, but the mute will sing and shout when Jesus comes to set at liberty those who've been held captive. That's where our mind is to settle on this text. And his friends implore Jesus. They beg Jesus to help their friend. I hear the English doesn't do a great job for us. The imploring is parakaleo. This is not a, a calling out to someone for a calling out sake. This is an ethical plea. They are imploring and they're begging Jesus because they believe that to heal their friend is the right thing for Jesus to do and that he will do this and that Jesus will do the right thing. If you can heal, you should heal. That's the imploring here. And what do they ask him to do? They pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. What an assumption of a Jewish rabbi to begin with. This is, a, this is a strange thing for a Jewish rabbi to be willing to lay hands. Touch was a major part of Jewish law. Or better said, not touching was a major part of Jewish law. Ceremonial uncleanness. Touching those who were viewed as cursed by God, which of course they thought that any birth defect, any hardship was like being deaf. 
The religious elite did not mingle with the masses. They wouldn't touch a leper. They would go nowhere near someone that they thought could defile them according to tradition or according to law. Not a problem for our Savior. You cannot make him unclean. All that is in him is pure and holy. All is perfect in full completeness. He cannot be defiled. Indeed, this is one of the amazing attributes of God. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he writes, quote, Without losing himself, God can give himself. And while absolutely maintaining his immutability, immutability meaning that God does not change. Immutability means God does not change. He can enter into an infinite number of relations to his creatures, close quote. Meaning he can give and give and give of himself and never be less than 100%. He can give of himself to this deaf man and it does not change him. Isn't that amazing? And it is this very immutability, it is God's unchanging nature that requires perfection. And it is that perfection which requires the immutability. That's why God can touch a leper. That's why he's never concerned with ceremonial uncleanness. Saints, if something was changeable, like everything around us, it must either get better or worse. One or the other. That's what it means to change. It's either better or worse. God can do neither. He cannot get better and he cannot get worse. Therefore, his unchanging nature requires perfection. And his perfection requires an unchanging nature. So when a changeable object or a changeable condition like being deaf or having leprosy comes in contact with that which is unchangeable and perfect and holy, it does not stain the unstainable. God will never get better or worse. He doesn't change. So when defilement touches Jesus, he's not defiled, but the defilement is made clean. And they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. Jesus hears their plea. Their friends cared enough about him to cry out to Jesus on his behalf. Jesus now responds. Interestingly enough, he responds, what? To the faith of the friends. Not necessarily to the faith of the deaf man. It doesn't say that Jesus saw faith in the deaf man at this point. What makes Jesus stop, what makes him respond at this point, is the faith of his friends. So let's see what Jesus does. Verse 33 and 34, we'll put them up together. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. Let's pause there for a moment. See the gentleness of Jesus here. The crowd is thronging. The deaf man can't hear any of it, but he certainly can see it all. Now, saints, this man has been ostracized his entire life. It wasn't just God cursing him by the Jewish standard, being that he was deaf. For him, it was all the Gentile gods that have cursed him. Now, at least in Jewish society, there were rules in the law for having compassion on different needs and different hardships. This is Gentile territory. There's no such rule. He would have been treated horribly. This man would have had no dignity whatsoever. You cannot hear. You cannot speak. You cannot function in this society without the pity of others. Yet these are not just the people. Are these not just the people that our Savior sees throughout our gospel? Jesus takes this man aside. 
away from the crowd, away from all the people. Just imagine that. If you could see a throng of people but not hear them. For me, if I could see a throng of people and not hear them, that would actually make me hypervigilant, wouldn't it? Because you don't have your hearing to inform you about the situation. All you have is your visuals. Jesus removes him. What does this say? By himself. Can we ponder that for a moment? That's so easy to gloss over. The creator of the universe pulls this man aside and gives him a private audience. Search the world for your God. You will never find one like this. Read the God of Muhammad, of the Hindus, and of the Buddhists. Never will you see a God like this. He took him away by himself. A private audience out of nothing but love and compassion. He is the God who cares about the one. He leaves the 99 and he goes and he rescues the one. If you are in Christ today, you did not come because you were part of a collective. You were just one. You came as an individual. You are not saved because your parents are saved. You are not a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. You were that one. Your repentance, your faith, a gift from God. Jesus left the 99. He came, he found you, he pulled you out of that crowd, and he drew you to himself. The objective in preaching through Mark, saints, is to know the heart of our Savior more. If we know him more, we will love him more. And this story grows our love for our Savior. Back to our text, a very interesting scene is unfolding here. One that begs a few questions. Jesus put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. What is happening here? Why on earth is Jesus doing all of this? What's with the fingers and the ears and the spit on the tongue? All the germaphobes in here just cringed. I saw it. Couldn't Jesus have just said, be healed? Well, of course. He wouldn't even need to say that. He could have just walked by the man and internally willed it in himself and it would have been done, not a word spoken. So what gives with this? The reason Jesus is doing this is the same reason that he pulled him aside privately, which he also didn't need to do. He's doing it out of love for this man. Well, what do we mean? First off, the fingers and the ears. Does Jesus need to do this? Absolutely not. This was Jesus' way of saying, focus on me, I know what's wrong with you. Focus on me, I know what's wrong with you. Jesus wants this man to know, I know what's wrong with you. And this was huge, why? Do you know what a lot of people would have accused someone who is deaf and dumb of being? Demon-possessed. And sometimes they were. Jesus is brushing that entire accusation aside. He's putting his fingers and his ears and he's saying, I see you. I see the problem. This was a symbolic way to communicate to this man that I know what's wrong. This was essentially sign language to him. But Jesus doesn't stop with the fingers and the ears. Now the man knows that Jesus knows what's wrong. Jesus makes his next gesture. He's going to tell this man I'm going to fix it. I'm going to heal you. Here's where the spit comes in. This is not completely unusual. We see Jesus employ a similar gesture in two other places in Scripture as well. But why? Did the saliva have any healing properties? No. Jesus is speaking a language that they understand, especially this man who can hear no words. 
In ancient and even pagan beliefs, power was thought to be contained in the spit. It was a tangible transfer of whatever property that person possessed. Jesus was basically speaking the language of contemporary culture to this guy. Now, is this true? No. But would this man now understand the meaning of what Jesus is about to do? Yes. He would now know. It's sign language. I know what's wrong with you, and I'm going to heal you. That's it. This was all for the benefit of this man to communicate with him, to even feed his faith. So now this man knows that Jesus knows that Jesus intends to heal him. Now with that knowledge, what does Jesus do? Verse 34. And looking up to heaven with a sigh. Now why do this? Was this required to heal the man? Again, no. Jesus is telegraphing to this man how it is that I'm healing you. What's the universal symbol for God even today? To look up. To look up. Everything up to this point, all the gestures, the fingers in the ears, the spit on the tongue, looking up to heaven are all for the benefit of this man. Except for this part, I believe. Jesus gave a sigh. Some translations say a deep sigh. Everything else was for this man, but this, this was Jesus. This was his own heart. This was his sympathy for the man. This was the pain in his heart to see the effects of sin on a fallen world plaguing image bearers. How many of us can relate when we have to witness pain or poverty when we have to witness the effects of sin in someone's life and the hurt that it brings, how many of us know what it is to give a deep sigh? We must see the deep sigh because it is insight into the immense compassion of our Savior's heart. And he said to him, Epphata, that means be opened. So Mark gives us the Aramaic word that Jesus would have actually spoken. Then he goes on to translate it for us. Thank you very much. Now look what happens. Look what happens. Verse 35. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. How does this happen? It's because Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, including this man's ears, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. His creator God. That's how this happens. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. Yes, the impediment was removed. His tongue was a prisoner loosed. And I imagine that this man himself was going to be a prisoner loosed as well. But hang on, there's always more. What does the last part of verse 35 say? And he began speaking plainly. Did you catch that? He began speaking orthos, meaning straight, right, orthopedic, orthodontist, right? 
Just because you can now hear, does that give you the ability of language and of speaking? And not just speaking clearly, but orthos, speaking rightly and correctly. Not only did Jesus heal his hearing, he supernaturally gave this man perfect speech. These are equal miracles in wonder and amazement. Today, if someone had their hearing restored after having been deaf for the majority of their life, it would be a very long process of speech therapy, of lesson languages, you name it. This man, fully restored. That's how Jesus heals. That's not only how Jesus heals, it's how he saves. All the way. All the way. Back to our text. What's the command of Jesus now? And what's the reaction? Verse 36. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he was ordering them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. How odd, isn't that? Here's your ability to speak, now be quiet. Right? This is actually very common in Jesus' ministry. It's known as the Messianic secret. And we've covered this quite a few times in other messages, so I I won't do a deep dive on that here. But it does tie into our last verse in a very profound way. And we know from Matthew's account that the crowds around Jesus during his time in Decapolis were huge. They were pulsating. But why? This is Gentile territory. No major ministry time spent here. What gives with the crowds? Crowds so bad that Jesus needs to tamp down on them by telling this newly liberated man that he needs to hush up. What happened here, saints? Those of you who have been following our series might already know the answer. Indeed, this, is a connection, this connection is one of my favorite stories in all of Mark. Now, it's correct. A lot of ministry had not happened in this area. But one very, very important piece of ministry had It was in this area that Jesus healed the demoniac of the Gadarene. Yet even after Jesus healed the demoniac, the crowd wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Remember that? In fact, they begged him to leave their region. Still, what does this former demoniac of the Gadarene, the very first Gentile missionary ever commissioned, what does he do? Ah, Where does he do it? Mark 5, verse 20. We'll put it up on the screen. And he went away and began to preach in the Decapolis. What great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was marveling. Can you imagine the evangelist that this man was? Saints, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And now, look at the fruit of that man's labor. Look what happened to this area. So connect this crowd now to our final verse, Mark 7, verse 37. And they were utterly astonished. The people, the crowd, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Yes, yes, yes. But hear the whole song of their praise. Not only has he saved the demoniac of the Gadarene, this man who was so wicked and vile and dangerous that we had to walk miles out of the way to avoid him. No chains could contain him. But now this, even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus did ten times these miracles amongst the Jews and most would not hear it. In fact, they told Jesus he was in cahoots with the devil. Not the Gentiles here. 
saving the demoniac who has now tilled the soil of the Decapolis hearts with his testimony. And now they receive the healing of this deaf and mute brother with a response of praise. He's done all things well. He's done all things well. Is it any wonder Jesus went to the Gentiles? Is it any wonder that he goes to the most unlikely places and calls the most unlikely people? If you are in Christ this morning, you and I were all unlikely candidates when the Lord sought us. There was nothing good in us that he would desire us. We were lifeless and we were dead toward the things of God. Till one day, having left the 99, he went out and he found the one. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you, Lord, that as Gentiles you have given us the spillover, that you have given us the crumbs, and even more, Lord, that you have given us a seat at the banquet table, that you have given us a seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we might dine with you, having been grafted in as sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us this week. We ask that you would attend to our hearts, Lord, that you would keep us from the evil one, that you would protect us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.